Excellent to be with you all this morning. Um, how is everybody doing? Ah, notice many of you said good. As part of our question for today's um, message, who defines good? Uh, that's what we're talking about today. And it's an important question. Who's got the authority to say what is good in life? Who has the power to make good happen? And this is all, of course, a part of our series on Ecclesiastes that I've been um, happy to present. Uh, we've already covered the first six chapters, or at least up to six, um, cha- verse 9. And Ecclesiastes, um, it's a book about wisdom from the standpoint of the teacher. Um, many of you will remember that Ecclesiastes is a Latin word for the teacher. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes has brought... Has, um, life experience that he's speaking from. He's bought everything that money can buy. He's enjoyed every experience that his heart has desired. Now, looking back on life, he's thinking about meaning, thinking about purpose in life, and reflecting on what is truly good. The overall conclusion for this book that we should always keep in mind when we're reading throughout Ecclesiastes is that we should both enjoy life and fear God. The the two work together. So we'll keep that in mind. And now as we come to um, this passage, which is from Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10 to 7, verse 14, we begin the second half of um, the book of Ecclesiastes. And before I read the first passage here, why don't we start off um, just with a word of prayer, asking for God's help here. Uh, Father God, we know that you are good. Uh, We're grateful that we serve a loving Father, a good God, who we can place our trust, our confidence, and our hope in. And God, we acknowledge that sometimes we look out at the world and we don't see good, and we see all sorts of things coming at us. God, help us to trust you this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, um, help us to hear what you would say to us. Help me in particular to be able to not be a distraction, but to point um, this congregation, your people, to Jesus Christ. We pray for your help today, and we do it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's read verses 10, 11, and 12. And um, I'll just let you know that this passage is bookended. Um, There's sort of like an introduction and a conclusion. Verses 10 to 12 would be the introduction, and 7 verses 13 and 14 would be the conclusion. And in the middle of that is a bunch of Proverbs, which the conclusion and the introduction make sense of. So let's read the, the introduction here. Whatever exists was given its name long ago, and it is known what man is. But he is not able to contend with one stronger than he, for when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for man? For who knows what is good for man in life, in the few days of his futile life, that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell man What will happen after him under the sun? One of the phrases that jumps out of this passage here is, but he is not able to contend with the one stronger than he. I think about that and I say, who are we to contend with God? Who are we to interrogate our creator about how he's made the world, about the way that things work? What right do we have to do that? The world is bigger than what we can see. There are just so many variables and things that we can't control, things that we can't fully explain. You know, there is a history that happened before we were born, and there's going to be lots that happens after we die. 
in all of this, who defines what is good? And how are we able to say that? What are we going to allow to define what is good for how we make decisions in life? What's going to guide you um, in that process? Will we look to our culture's definition of what is good and go with that advice? Will we go to the, the philosophers? Um, the temptation, of course, is to go to our own hearts, our own minds, and use our feelings and our emotions and our logic to define what is good. The teacher of Ecclesiastes eloquently points out, we don't have the ability to make that definition because we're limited in our knowledge. We're limited in our authority. The one who can define what is good is the one who is outside of time, the one who can see the end from the beginning. But will we live our lives according to what God, our creator, declares to be good? Let's see what happens in... Um, in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 7. Now, I just want to set up um, some of the wise sayings. These proverbs are wise sayings in these 12 verses. Um, because there's more than one way of reading these. I, I've got a couple of key resources, or three key resources I'm using for this series, and they had different ways of looking at this. Um, one way is that saying that Solomon is showing that all the wisdom that the world has accumulated is insufficient to show what is good. And so what he'll do, this version would say, this um, perspective, is he'll state a point that's wise, a point that people already widely accept, and then he circles back to show the logical ends of that, of that saying. Okay, if you think that's wise and you really draw it out to its full meaning, is it really wise in the end, if, if you get to the end of that axiom or that principle? And so he will show how at its end, Maybe we still don't truly know what is good according to the wisdom that we have. And of course, there's another way of looking at these things, which says that Solomon says, yes, we need God to define what is good, but there still are many different things in this world that are better. There are better ways of doing things. For example, we know that wisdom is better than folly. That seems like a sound way to say things. So they kind of work together. We can learn a bit from both perspectives. I'm going to try to do that a little bit this morning. But the main point for us is to continually ask this question as we read this. Who defines good? And at the end of the day, we all must make the decision, whose definition of good will we live our lives by? Let's look at Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 and 2. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, since that is the end of all mankind, and the living should take it to heart. First, um, better than saying we get is that a good name is better than a fine perfume. Well, what is the value of a good name? Easy to agree, I think, in this group of people that a good name is a valuable thing. How far can a good reputation take you? Um, a limited example here is that in business, just being connected to somebody else with a good name is valuable. Um, that person could give you a good reference. And based on someone else's good name, you might get an opportunity that you wouldn't otherwise have. It's easy to make a case for a good name in so many different ways. Even in this limited example, we can see the value of a good name. Solomon goes on to say that the day of one's death is better than the day of birth. Well, I put a question mark on the slide there at the end of that sentence. So that you'll ask the question, is the day of death better than the day of birth? What is he getting at here? With some of these wisdom sayings, you've got to sort of 
Think about it. You don't want to just take it at the face value. Hmm, the day of birth. That's a day that's filled with joy and excitement, especially for the mothers after the baby is born. And it's a wonderful and awe-inspiring thing to hold a brand new baby. Say, look at this miracle. Look what God has made. It's just, it's remarkable. Is the day of death better than that? Where loss of life is in view? There's a palpable feeling of the pain of separation. Why is that day better than the day of birth? You know, ancient sages taught that there was a way to cheat death, a way to beat the system, maybe a sort of immortality. How? Well, by the power of your good name, they would say. Do good things. Build up a legacy. Let there be honorariums, scholarships, awards given in your name so that even after you die, your name will still go forward. People will still be talking about you, they said. For example, this isn't tough to think about, Consider the Nobel Peace Prize or the Stanley Cup. Uh, these, these men have passed on, but their names live on. Is there a huge advantage there? Maybe what the teacher of Ecclesiastes wants for us to consider is that maybe life is worth more than just a reputation. Yes, a good name is valuable, but is that where you put your identity and your worth? Is it worth all that effort to live now so that people will think well of you later? Why is there a value there? Of course there's a good value to reputation. Why? The thing is we don't want to lose sight of the fact that what is most important is what God thinks about us. Our reputation in heaven should be the one that we live for. And what people say about us here is secondary to that always. And we can trust God with what people would say about us or not say about us because it's his reputation that we live for. We do what God asks. We trust our earthly reputation to him because in the end, who cares what people say about you if God doesn't call you good? Verse 3, grief is better than laughter for when a face is sad, a heart may be glad. You know, life is full of contradictions. Grief isn't all sad. There's some goodness there. Laughter isn't all, all good. There's some, there's some goodness and some laughter, and they kind of go together somehow. Sometimes laughter happens with the grief. And even when we are happy, we can still have an awareness that this happiness won't last. There's a, a feeling there, a nagging feeling. Hardship is coming. Trials are coming. And, and so we do laugh. But if we step back to think about it, we say, yes, but we're still living in a fallen world. There's still all sorts of things that we can't control that are coming at us. Who knows what tomorrow might bring? Proverbs 17, or Proverbs 14, verse 13 says it this way. Even in laughter, a heart may be sad, and joy may end in grief. You know, life is composed of moments. Moments last for different lengths of time. They have this in common, though. Moments will eventually come to an end. Well, maybe that gives you a hope today. You know your sadness isn't forever. It could turn to joy. But here's the thing. We can't just live for the moment that we're in. We, we have to live for something bigger than a moment. Um, it's like the couple who's getting married. The big day's approaching. Where should they put their efforts? Should they put their effort into the current day, just considering right now? Should they put their effort into just that wedding ceremony, all their time and investment into that moment? Should they put their effort into what comes after the ceremony, into the life? 
One thing is for sure, their lives will be full of all sorts of moments, times of laughter and sorrow. And through all of the times, all of the moments, we keep in mind, yes, God is overall. Verse 4, the heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of pleasure. Well, one of the commentators that I used in my research, um, the anchor Yale Bible commentary, says that these are absurd sayings. That's how they, it takes it. It poses the question, who could really make sense of these claims? Is it a rule that a house of mourning is full of only wise hearts? There's only wisdom in a house of mourning? Is there a sign on the house of pleasure saying, fools only? Right? Uh, this way of seeing the passage claims that, and this is a quote from that commentary, no one can reduce the realities of life and death or happiness and sadness to a set of propositions. The realities of life are simply too contradictory for one to be governed by axioms. Well, there's another way of looking at this. It's to say that the house of mourning is a classroom for life. In the house of mourning, we're reminded of our mortality. We are given a stark reminder that life is something that should be considered and thought through. And if not, we can go from a good, one good time to the next good time without thinking about eternity. And suddenly, life is at its end and you haven't put any thought into it. Sure, enjoy the good times, but treasure the trials. In fact, we can even consider the trials that come at us to be joy. We read that in James chapter 1. Consider it a great joy, my brothers. Whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Who defines good in your life? And what is the good that we are living for? Is it what feels good in a moment? Do we live with the big picture in mind? For a good life is full of more than just good moments that we work hard to fabricate. Verses 5 and 6. It is better to listen to rebuke from a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of burning thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futile. Now there's something very neat about verse 6 that I discovered this week that I wanted to share with you. And that is the way that it sounds in the original language. So there's a, there's a slide for this on the screen. And you can see the original language there. And there's all sorts of S's and K sounds, right? So this over and over and K, K, K. And when you say this in the original language, which I won't try to do just because it won't work, but uh, you can look at it and imagine how it would sound. It would sound like a fire hissing and little things popping. So it's really, very amazing wordplay that we would miss just in the English language. I thought you'd appreciate that. And even the words used to describe the fool's speech here in verse 6 would sound like the crackling of thorns in a fire. And when thorns burn, all sorts of weird poppings go on with the occasional miniature explosion. Much better is a sustained heat of coals. Fool's words are similar to that cracking and explosions. There's a hissing with the fool's words, along with all the weird sounds and maybe even the miniature explosion. That's, that's not, um, not ideal for us. Rebuke is. And you know, rebuke is hard to listen to. 
I appreciate rebuke from a wise person because I need to grow. That does not necessarily make it a fun experience, though, does it? But the words of, a wise, of the wise, the, the loving rebuke, those words last for a while in our hearts. We can think about them. We can consider them. Think about the person who has spoken those words. Appreciate the content, the message, the heart behind those words. And there can be a sustained heat and a sustained help for us. So it would sound now like the teacher is agreeing about the merits of wisdom. He's saying, look at this. We want the wisdom, the, the loving rebuke of a, of a friend, of a wise person. He once again shows the advantage of wisdom over foolishness. That's why the last sentence in verse 6 might just catch you off guard. This too is futile. What? Why are, um, are not the words of the wise to be cherished? Well, sure they are, but we're seeing they're not foolproof. Wise words are not enough to build life on. You know, each of these wisdom sayings um, has an ingredient of wisdom. There, there's some help there. But is the teacher saying that the sum total is futility, empty talk, not enough? You know, would it be fair to say that our secular world, the culture that we live in, has many of these proverbs fi figured out, but they're still missing out on meaning in life? Where does true meaning come from? The ups and the downs all lead toward the same end for each of us. How then should we approach wisdom? We need someone who can define good for that to work. Who defines good? Moving on to verse 7. Surely the practice of extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe destroys the mind. Ah, we're beginning to see the limits of wisdom. There are things that can turn a wise person into a fool. Extortion is one good example. It makes a fool of the wise. And a bribe can destroy what was a good mind. Other translations would say that a bribe destroys the heart. You know, oppression can be a great temptation for even the wise, remembering that this is written to a group of people who will lead the country of Israel. Oppression, a great temptation. And even the wise who know better can become fools on the promises of riches. You might know the phrase, everyone has a price. Is that a phrase you're familiar with? Because that's what comes to my mind when I read verse 7 here about the bribe. You are wise until someone names a reward or a price that you want over and above what you believe is good and right. So what is the safeguard of goodness for the wise? Solomon wished, he knew, wished that he knew that because he found that all his wisdom led to futility. And he wants to be good more than anything. Solomon's writing Ecclesiastes at the end of life. And he's enjoyed wisdom, riches, honor, pleasure, fame. You know, at the end of it all, he's got to say, but was it a good life? In the next verses, we see some caution for the wise. Verses 8 and 9. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. A patient spirit is better than a proud spirit. Don't let your spirit rush to be angry, for anger abides in the hearts of fools. Is it better to make a good plan with hopes and dreams, or is it better to be at the finished stage of a project, looking back on what you've accomplished? Yes, the end is better than the beginning. Patience is far better than pride. Patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, a mark of God's goodness on the Christian's life. 
Opposed to patience is pride. For when you are prideful, you will learn that God opposes the proud. Anger can be the result of a broken pride. Patience doesn't rush to anger, for anger lives in the heart of the foolish. Do you know anyone who is easily angered? Do you find yourself walking on eggshells when they are around? You don't want to set off that anger, do you? You won't walk on eggshells around a person who is humble. When you're with a humble person, there's just a freedom to be yourself, open up, share your heart, and relax. God, help us to be patient and humble. We need his help for that. Uh, Here's another temptation that faces us all, verses 10 through 12. Don't say, why were the former days better than these? Since it's not wise of you to ask this. Wisdom is as good as an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun because wisdom is protection as money is protection. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its owner. Remember the good old days? Everybody has good old days. We look back and our memories are all good. The golden years we might call the good old days. Well, hard fact. Those days aren't going to help you on the day of adversity. When the hard time comes, we need to do better than just wish for the good old days to come back and think about that. It's not wise to live in the past, complaining about the present, and losing hope for the future. Solomon says that wisdom is as good as an inheritance. Two views on this one. One, an inheritance is not as reliable as you think. That's the first view. Therefore, wisdom is not as reliable as you think. You do all the right things. You use wisdom. Still, there are variables outside of your control, things you did not see coming. A second view on this one. You could think of the inheritance as a gift of land. When the Israelites moved into the land promised to God for them, each family was given, allotted, an inheritance, a piece of land. And no matter what good or bad decisions that they made with the land, they knew that a year of jubilee would come. That's what the law of Moses said should happen. Every 50 years, there'd be a year of jubilee, and things would all reset. You would get the land back that was promised to your family. So, taking this view, we might conclude that through wisdom, we can survive whatever adversity comes our way, because there's always a year of jubilee on the horizon. Two views of that. Moving along. Wisdom is a protection in the same way that money is a protection. Okay, now we have to maybe question. Money, is it a protection? Jesus himself teaches us that we can't put our confidence in money. What's the teacher here saying? How are wisdom and money similar? Well, both wisdom and money provide protection, but the protection they provide is not reliable as we would like to think. If all of our confidence is in money, are we in trouble? Yes. If all of our confidence is in wisdom, are we in trouble? Yes. Do both have value? I think so. Are both worth building your life on? You know the answer. No, we can't build our lives just on wisdom or just on money. We have to build our lives on something much better, much more strong and enduring and eternal than wisdom and money. So let's get to the conclusion. Verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, for who can straighten out what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man cannot discover anything that will come after him. 
you know, I was going to call this message Wisdom in the Ups and Downs of Life because of those verses. In the introduction, uh, verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6, we're reminded that humans are not able to dispute what is happening in the world. Only one who stands outside of time, outside of creation, can give us a proper perspective and understanding. And we have all of these different wise sayings to help us learn that there are some things that are better, there are some good advantages that we can hold on to, but at the end of it all, we still have the question, who defines what is good? If all that we were to learn today was from this passage alone, we could conclude that human beings, us, we, can only take things as they come. We would say we can't straighten out what is crooked. Some things just can't be fixed. And that's hard because we, we really want for things to be made right. We want to fix problems that we're inside of. Yet there are trials, adversity, and hard things that we would rather not live through, but we must live through them. And when things are wonderful, we should rejoice and enjoy those things, treasure those moments. When life is hard, though, how do we respond? And can we get some perspective from the one who defines what is good? Throughout this message, I've tried to present two different views on the passage, two different ways of thinking. Uh, one view says Solomon is challenging wisdom by saying it really has its limitations. And at the end of wisdom, it was still futile. It still wasn't enough. The other view I presented said that Solomon was showing that there are things that are better. And there are some things that we have learned, proverbs and principles to help us make decisions and live better lives. So why am I doing this? Why is there two views that I'm trying to show you, maybe inviting questions into your mind? What I'm trying to do is illustrate a main point, and that is who defines good? Who gets to interpret the scriptures? Who gets to be our primary teacher here? Jesus alone defines what is good. He has the authority because he is outside of time. He can see the end from the beginning. He actually has the authority to make good happen because he is the one with victory over sin and death. You know, he was teaching the people in the Sermon on the Mount, and he gives off, he, uh, he, he fights a, a misassumption that people had made about him. He says in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or even one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. And what follows in that sermon that Jesus gives is a series of teachings, and they all start like this. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. There had been people teaching God's law. But now Jesus was here as God himself interpreting God's law. God himself, Jesus, fully man and fully God, is fulfilling God's law. Jesus gets to define what is good. Of course he does. He's fully man and fully God. Who else has the words of life? To who else can we go to get our answers from? Our challenge is to not define good for ourselves. Trust me, we're tempted to want to define what is good for ourselves. Instead, we just 
we need to place our entire confidence in Jesus Christ. You know, there are all sorts of things yelling at you. I'm good. Do what I say. There are additional voices subtly whispering, is God good? Can you really trust him? Voices saying, would a good God really let you go through that? But Jesus is the only one who ever lived a truly good life. The rest of us are the sinners. He is spotless, pure, and good. His words, every single one of them, are life. The Pharisees were trying to tell the people what was good. The Pharisees were not helping at all, though. They were giving off legalism. They were saying all the things that you have to do to prove yourself to be good. And it was this weight that was on people's shoulders. It was too much. People were falling underneath this weight, and they weren't knowing God's love at all. Instead, they were just weighed down. Jesus called them thieves for this. They were stealing people's lives. They were stealing the hope. What is whispering good into your life that isn't from God? What is trying to steal life from you? Jesus says in John 10.10, a thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. You know, we need the goodness of Jesus every moment of our lives. We need his definition of good for every breath that we breathe, every thought that we are to think. Will you let Jesus define what is good? All of scripture points to Jesus. He fulfilled all that was written before him. Everything that was written after him goes on to explain the implications of his salvation on people's life. Will you live according to what Jesus says, according to his teachings, what the Bible says? For Jesus is the good shepherd. He has died so that through him we could be called good. His resurrection proves that he is overall. We can trust him. We may repent of our sins. Repenting is changing our minds and our hearts, saying, the way I was thinking isn't good. I want your goodness. We can repent of our sin, trust Jesus with our entire life, and he says we can have abundant life. He will prove his goodness over and over and over again in this life and in the one that is to come. A few application points for you this morning. If you're taking, uh, if you've got the sermon notes, these aren't in the notes. You're going to have to grab a pen and write these ones down if you want to remember them. Number one, who defines what is good? Read the Bible. We need to go back to the Bible over and over again. And as we read the Bible, we can ask for God's help in understanding it. You know, Jesus calls us to live righteous lives. He makes us righteous by his righteousness, but he's given us the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, We don't have to read this Bible with our own understanding, our own logic. We can say, God, you be my teacher. I want to learn from you. And as you read your Bible, you will be able to see the world as God sees the world, get his definition of what is good. So please, let's be a church that reads our Bibles and loves the word of God. Second point, repent of any thinking that goes against what God says is good. Now, this kind of goes in line with reading the Bible because as you read the Bible, things will jump out to you and they'll challenge your thinking. And you'll say, am I going to go with how I feel about this? Or am I going to go along with what God says about this? There'll be things that you've been living life on. You say, oh, I've been doing this wrong. 
God, I don't, I don't want to do it wrong. I want to do it your way. Repent of any thinking that goes against what God says is good. And the third point, you could just write down Proverbs 3, verse 5. It's a great, great um, verse to help us here. It says that we should trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Think about him in all of your ways and he will guide you on the right paths. Amen. Let's uh, sing a final song. And then I will close with a benediction.